Hey folks, Justin here, just dropping in a pseudo-post-show intro of sorts, considering we kind of went off the rails on this episode. If you've been listening to this podcast up to this point, first of all, thank you. And then you probably know that this is a really huge one for us, specifically Daniel and myself. So I'll shut the hell up, and without further ado, here's the interview with Mr. Full Moon himself, Charles Band, featuring Angelique, Daniel, and myself. And if you enjoy, consider leaving us a review wherever you're listening to this, and have a good one. Greetings, boils and ghouls. This is your comrade, the Crypt Keeper here, reporting dead from the sanctuary of the strange. Tonight's macabre myth is a fright-filled feature, one overflowing with monsters, madness, and magic. <laughs> Okay, Charles, let's just assume that there's a single person out there that's listening to this podcast who has no idea who Charles Band is. Before we dive into the filmography and the new book, let's go back in time first to get some context into your childhood. What were your passions? What made you tick? Was it always films? Were you into comics? Were you building models? What's the scoop? Well, let's see. Um, yeah, I, I grew up in Rome, Italy, so actually Italian is kind of my first language. My dad made movies in Europe after he started his career with John Huston. A lot of stories there. And Marilyn Monroe was my babysitter, apparently twice. My fortune is I was four months old, couldn't enjoy any of it, you know, so <laughs> lots of stories in the book. Anyway, he took us to Europe when we were just a few years old and um, grew up in Rome. Back then in the 60s, you know, there was, of course, nothing like we can enjoy today. There was really no television per se. I grew up on a diet of really bizarre Italian movies, some Italian horror movies, an occasional American movie that made its way over in Italian, and comics. And I was a big Marvel comics freak even before the superhero books. So my favorites are all the ones that were just before all the superheroes came out. You know, the early journey into mystery and uh, tales to astonish, you know, the all the Kirby stories and stuff with Ditko. And I had a pretty big collection of a lot of those books. So yeah, I was kind of great music. Sorry about that. Of the, the 60s, Beatles, and later on you know, Pink Floyd, mixed in with weird Italian movies and comic books. Awesome. So your brother Richard really dove heavily into the music. So what sort of saved you from going that route? Uh, you know, I was always as far back as I can remember, sort of entrepreneur, out of control guy. I did so many things as a kid. I can't, I mean, if anyone I knew had a son or daughter who did these things today, they'd be in real trouble. I'd, I'd sort of persuade them, please don't try to open a club, a club in a foreign country at age 15. I did it and, you know, learned from a thousand mistakes. I never went to any business school. I, you know, I graduated high school and then I started basically making movies. So yeah, a lot of mistakes and you know, a lot of learning. It's still going on, mistakes and learning. But, but yeah, it was that kind of really interesting 60s sort of music, a lot of music, great Italian and weird Italian movies, comic books. Growing up on a movie set, I mean, all I can remember, my earliest memories of being on my dad's movie sets which I loved. And I, I learned quickly I wanted to be behind the camera because he put me in some of the movies. I mean, I played the son of Steve Reeves in a Hercules movie, which seems ridiculous because I hate everything about that. Especially when they had to curl my hair just because I had to look like Steve Reeves, you know. And I eventually figured out, no, I want to sort of be like that guy, the guys behind the camera just figuring it all out and making the movies. What was the first thing, um, Daniel, by the way, I'm the guy that gushed yeah. all over you at uh, HauntCon in New Orleans. You'll probably remember me. Don't worry. I'll make a fool of myself. <laughs> I, I remember, I remember your, 
I remember your, I'm really good with faces, names are not good, but yeah, that's why I call everyone dude, you know, it's just so easy. Like, <laughs> I'm a kid of the 80s, everything is dude to me, it's fine. <laughs> what, what was the first, like, whenever, because you say you wanted to be the guy behind the camera, you wanted to make the movies, right. and I know you dig the sci-fi and the comic book stuff, so I'm curious as to, like, what, what was the first thing that you really wanted to do? Like, you talked about transfers and puppet masters, kind of like your pet project, and then there was, was it Primeval's? is like, that's the the golden ring that you're going for that I hope you get. Like, what was the first one that was like, this is my project, this is the first one? Which one was it for you? There never was one. If, if there was, I probably would have gone into mainstream movie making and waited a year or two to try to get a big project off the ground. I like being prolific. I like knowing that some years we made 20 features. Next year coming up, we'd probably make 18 to 20 movies. <laughs> I, I love giving birth to ideas. And it's all about that. You know, once something's done, it's like I, I'm on to the next thing. So it, it was never one particular project. And I made the movie we're about to shoot. The very next movie is movie number 354. God. Yeah. And I, you know, I'm, I'm a collector and a freak for numbering stuff. So I numbered all my movies starting with number one. And now it's 354. But I do have a kind of funny story, which is kind of not even in the book but so i get back to the states i'm 20 years old you know i already done a ton of entrepreneurial things my dad had a great run then he ran out of money so we came back basically uh, myself my younger brother my mom and dad broke and you know so for a few months i, I actually worked on hollywood boulevards selling ties in a men's clothing store which is the worst i mean i'm a good salesperson so i was successful but i'm also colorblind so i don't know how i managed to hook uh, <laughs> all these poor characters up with really bad matching ties but very early on in that cycle i came up with again another entrepreneurial idea and i it's a very long story and it's good in the book and there's also things in the book that i can't even tell you they're just out of control crazy and people would think really charlie you went to the slammer really you did all that shit but yeah there were options really horrible now i was you know working no money and for some reason, I don't even remember, I had to go to New York and I saved up my money. I visited a friend, big memory, but I used to look always in the miscellaneous for sale section back then of like the New York Times or the LA Times where people would sell the weirdest shit. It was like, you know, a million years before eBay. And somebody was selling, which I later found out why, an original run of the New York Times dating back to 1916, like 1916 to 1960-something. So it was like 50 years and you know, hundreds of bound monthly volumes, and it was three grand, which was a lot of money. I mean, I had maybe $150 in the bank account. And that, even that was probably, a, I post-dated checks. Who knows? I had no money. But I thought, wow, that is a, thousands of papers. And then there were like the original comics. And so I called this guy up in Dallas and I said, hey, dude, I'm really interested in your, your, your collection. Tell me a bit about it. And he explained, which I then learned later, that that was an era where um, big libraries were going to microfish. You know, basically they were getting rid of these massive volumes of newspapers and New York Times was the most prestigious and they were putting them on where you could look and not have to bother with the volume so they were excuse me getting rid of these tonnage of, of books and he bought this particular run from a Dallas library and I thought oh my god and he said they're in perfect condition I said look I, I'm going to reroute myself through Dallas which was not easy back then you know, no online stuff and can you meet me at the airport bring one volume just one volume if it looks good oh you got a deal so I meet him at the airport like guy with you just you can imagine kind of a cowboy with a hat older guy volume was amazing it was like a, it was like during d-day or something big thick beautifully bound every single page every issue i said you got a deal i'm not going to handle i'll pay your price the only thing is you've got to get these things out to me you do free delivery and he said you know normally i'd say no but i got two young sons and they need a little work so 
I'm going to send them out. They'll each be driving a 20-foot U-Haul. You better find five or six garages to put these books in. He said, it'll be about a month. So a month goes by. I'm back working at the store again. But I'm getting to my first movie and my, my derailment of my first movie. So I get back. Sure enough, I, I didn't forget about it, but I, I didn't have anything close to that kind of money. I get a call from one of his boys, and he said, hey, we're about a day away, so get ready. Where do we deliver all the books? It's going to fill up probably the equivalent of two or three garages. Make sure you have our cash. I'm thinking, oh, shit. So, you know, <laughs> mother, mother of invention, I'm running around, I'm uh, borrowing. I don't know how I found the money, and then I had to figure out, you know, how to store this stuff. So, you know, I was in an apartment. But, you know, I had to call friends. And anyway, it was logistically all figured out. Those guys arrived. It was two 20-foot U-Hauls chock full. And each volume probably weighed 20 pounds. You know, one full bound volume of the New York Times. Anyway, got him, paid the money. Now trying to figure out what the hell am I going to do with these things. So I tried the first idea was I'm going to go to a swap meet, bring 20 or 30. You know, each paper, but when you do the math, was like five cents. It was nothing. But if you sell a volume, maybe it cost me a dollar. I forget exactly the numbers. So I figured, you know, wouldn't anybody pay $20 for a whole bound volume in the New York Times? And so we, you know, we took 20 or 30 of these heavy fuckers to some swap meet and I sold three. Thought, okay, this is definitely take me this way, you know, a hundred years to sell this stuff. And then I thought, I'm, I'm trying to make this brief. I want to get to the movie, but it's a good story. So it's how I actually got money to start making movies. People ask, well, who gave you the money? So anyway, I thought, well, what would be cool is if I could find maybe through my dad, who was still very well connected, a bunch of wealthy guys who have a lot of clients and as a birthday gift, I would cut out the full edition of the New York Times for the date of your birth, bind it in a leather red with the gold New York Times logo and your name and your date of birth. So long story short, I found a book binder who would do the work. And it, by the way, it cost $10 a book to bind these things. And the book, the, the actual newspaper was about a nickel. I did the thing and my dad, luckily, even though he was on hard times, you know, he was friends with Johnny Carson and the head of the William Morris agency. I had about 20 of these fat cats who had lots and lots of friends. And I wrote a letter and it basically said, hey, this is a new business, very unique, probably the coolest gift you'll ever give anyone, $50 a pop, $50 is what I felt was, and that's almost a lot of money back in 70, yeah. whatever it was, 172. But it was also the original issue of the New York Times. Long story short, I sent these letters out, and within three, four weeks, I had about a quarter of a million dollars of or <laughs> a massive, insane amount of money. So of course, being real clever and smart, I was just turning 21. At the exact <laughs> time, there was this house that was available up the street where this apartment was. It was a beautiful, today probably a $8 million mansion just here in Hollywood, in the Hollywood Hills. And it was for sale for a hundred grand, which was a lot of money back in 71, 72, with $25,000 down. But at the same time, I, because I was going to make a movie, of course, there was a, an opportunity to buy a Lamborghini Mura for 25000 So I made the wise choice and I bought the car. <laughs> which, uh, never bought the house which I had to sell years later to pay someone or pay something that I forget, you know, <laughs> another movie. But okay, now I have money to make my movie. And all I wanted to do was make a horror film. And the movie I wanted to make, the idea was about this doctor who's kind of accidentally causes his, he's an eye surgeon, causes his daughter's crash that then she loses her eyesight. And the only way he can figure out how to put new eyes in her was get victims, cut their eyes out because he was a genius, throw them in the cellar, not know what to do with all the victims. And he, every time you'd see the girl, she had different color eyes. And the title, the original title was The Eyes of Dr. Cheney, kind of a riff on, you know, Lon Cheney. So I was mm -hmm. ready to make this movie, I had the script. I was very close to a writer at the time for many years, a guy named Frank Ray Perilla. He was an exploitation writer. He did movies like 
the Doberman gang about a bunch of Doberman pincers that are trained to go rob a bank. He had all these strange exploitation movie hits, but we became very good friends. He was sort of my mentor in Hollywood, took me to things I'd never been to before, including my first porno, which was super embarrassing. Anyway, so Frankie, <laughs> who's a stand-up guy, vaudeville guy, burlesque guy, and he was Lenny Bruce's partner for years, he convinces me, which is a huge mistake. It almost ended my almost my zero career at that time. He said, instead of making this horror movie, the biggest hit of that moment was a movie called Last Tango in Paris starring Marlon Brando. He said, we got to make a satire. Let's make the last Foxtrot in Burbank. I said, Frankie, that's a terrible idea. Terrible. He said, no, we'll make a fortune. It's a satire. I have this wonderful actor named Michael Pataki. He does an amazing Brando. He'll be burlesque. We'll copy the movie. We'll have tits. We'll have Bush. He was, you know, he gave me all the, uh, sorry. No, I said much worse. Okay, okay. (laughs) So somehow Frank Ray Perilli, the sweetest guy ever, my closest friend, passed away recently convinced me to put Mansion of, well, it was called Eyes of Dr. Cheney. It was eventually made as Mansion of the Doom. Put it to the side and make the last Foxtrot in Burbank. Went out, made it, kind of embarrassed at how ridiculous it was. If you had not seen Tango, the movie made no sense because it was pretty much a riff scene by scene on Tango, but all with stupid burlesque stuff. And of course, being crazy entrepreneur, everyone convinced me, well, you'll never really make a distribution deal. So you got a four wall, you got to rent some theaters and bring in Klieg lights and do a huge premiere. And they figured out all the ticket sales and I should make my money back in a week. And so I did all this stuff, literally spent every penny I had that I had made in, in that whole book thing. And I shot this movie and I released this movie and the, the only way to describe how badly it went is we did a premiere, which was free, and we we were connected to celebrities. We had like Dustin Hoffman show up and all that kind of stuff. I have this in the book. But my friends recommended that I hire someone to stand at the door. We only rented two theaters. It was $8,000, two Pacific theaters, one in Hollywood, one in Westwood. They said, the theater guys will cheat you, even though you own every dollar because you rented the theater. So I have a guy at each theater doing clicking a little clicker. So at the end of each screening, he'll say 140 people, 180 people. 200 people, and that way you'll keep tabs of all the money. So I'm like, okay. So I, I, one guy I didn't know, and I hired my closest friend who was an incredible pothead. I mean, just like always super stoned, sweet guy. He came down from Carmel. I grew up with him in Italy. So he's there at the Hollywood Theater, and we do the premiere, and it was packed. Of course, it was free and free booze and Klieg lights and celebrities. The nar- very next screening was the first paid screening where people had to pay at the box office to go in there, and eight people showed up. I think it was a a 900 seat theater. So I went home and I'm just thinking, okay, just move back to Italy forever. What are my options? You know, just (laughs) nightmare, fucking nightmare. And then maybe an hour later, my friend Steve calls from the payphone, of course. And he says, dude, I, I can't even do his voice because he's so fucked up. He goes, dude, I got the best fucking news ever. I'm thinking, oh my God, it was a fluke. Only eight, nine people. I said, oh, great. I said, well, that's the third screening after the premiere. He goes, yeah, yeah. And it's fucking amazing. I go, what happened? I figured there's 200 people there. I said, well, how many people are there? He said, oh, there's only like seven. I go, what, so what's the deal? But of those seven people, John Lennon and Yoko Ono are here. Isn't that fucking awesome? it was the greatest day ever and for me it was like okay for sure i'm totally fucked and they didn't walk out which was interesting because real bad movie so then somehow luckily this book binding business kept going and my wife at the time she was learning how to do the binding so we didn't have to spend the ten dollars and money kept coming in so at some point i got my breath back and i thought okay now i'm gonna make the eyes of dr cheney which i did and of course i was young and stupid and i gave it to a distributor who i made no money but nonetheless he gave me an advance and at the last minute he says you know title's no good it's too highbrow we're going to call it mansion of the doomed i think fuck that's the worst b title ever (laughs) 
but that's how it was released. And it did really well. I mean, it was an interesting bunch of characters. Richard Basehart, you know, Academy Award winner, played the doctor. Gloria Graham, uh, Lance Henderson's first movie. My effects guy was Dan Winston, who became a very, very close friend. He passed away. My director of photography was Andy Davis, who then went on to direct movies like The Fugitive. So I had this like crazy, oh, I should mention Last Foxtrot in Burbank, which the end of my story, I'll get to in a minute. The Last Foxtrot in Burbank, my editor was John Carpenter. He and I were friends and he was trying <laughs> Damn. to, he was trying to wow. Well, we all took terrible names because it was such an embarrassment. So his name was John Casino. These are all bad Italians. <laughs> casino means a casino or casino means a craziness. And I took the worst name ever, Carlo Bocchino, which means Charlie Blowjob, because I was so embarrassed of this fucking movie. But anyway, now I make Mansion of the Doom. It does well. I have plans. And the minute I got to do interviews and I started building a career, I literally erased Last Foxtrot, meaning I didn't acknowledge it. It didn't have a number. Mansion of the Doom is my first movie. It's number one. And I started numbering my movies ever since for 40 odd years, starting with Mansion of the Doom, until I sat down with this wonderful biographer and last year during COVID wrote the book, which has crazy stories, Confessions of a Puppet Master. And I told him the Foxtrot story about John Lennon and the disaster and almost, you know, whatever, leaving town. And he said, you've got to write about it. He said, fuck it. I said, well, the movie's gone. I literally threw everything away. I didn't want any trace of the movie. I've never talked about it. It's such an embarrassment. He said, put it in the book. So I pretty much an expanded version of what you guys are hearing. And then the craziest thing happened. So literally two months ago, I'm, one of my friends is a guy named Larry Karaszewski. He was a wonderful writer and some of my favorite movies. So anyway, Larry calls, he goes, you know, because he's a real film freak and he's hooked in with Joe Dante and they have trailers from hell. You probably guys know about yeah. it. So Larry says, you know, Charlie, really nutty thing, but I found from a collector the an original trailer for The Last Foxtrot in Burbank. If it's okay, I'll clean it up and I'll do a little, you know, shtick on it and put it up on Trailers from Hell. I said, great. So he sent me the trailer after he cleaned it up with his little thingy and it brought back all bad memories, but nonetheless, there we are. <laughs> and then what happened, which was even more bizarre, is because he posted this on his Twitter or whatever, he gets a, a note from one of the guys who run the UCLA film archives and the, the, the post of the text or whatever he got says, hey, you won't believe it, but I looked, we looked in our archive and I think we have the original negative of the last Oscar <laughs> Burbank, the whole fucking movie. And I go, what? Because I know I threw the prints out and I, I got rid of everything because it was such a nightmare. But, you know, the lab that I used was probably some small lab that went out of business. So anyway, I called this guy up, couldn't be nicer. And he says, yeah, he said, somebody brought the negative in here 47 years ago. And unlike a lot of other movies, no one ever for 47 years has asked about it. It's just sat there for 47 <laughs> years. And I said, well, I'm asking about it because I think I should probably transfer and release it. I mean, what the fuck? I mean, so so that's happening. We just transferred it. It's such a bad movie, but it, has <laughs> it does have very bizarro historical moments. And uh, of course, I had to number it. So it's now number zero. Are your films numbered in your book? Do you have a detail? listing of all those no movies? i don't you can go on our site and see the list go to full moon direct and look at film library i mean they're all listed yeah but it starts with mansion of the doom number one we're gonna have to put in foxtrot as number zero soon enough because we're gonna release <laughs> pretty soon in, in all its uh, embarrassing glory that's a long story to say that's how it all started then you know after mansion i was on a pretty good roll yeah i'll say before we get too far away from it, Charles, you did just mention Lance Henriksen. I want to ask you about the set of The Pit and the Pendulum, because I know that Lance is a method actor, and I believe he plays a character named Torquenada in that movie, and I gotta say, that's one of the last people I'd want to be stuck in the castle with. <laughs> 
because I've never written a book and I'm usually talking about movies, I'm going to ask stupid questions. Did you actually read the book? I have read half of the book. I have it right here in front of me, actually. What, what do you think so far? It's great, man. I've been having a lot of fun reading it, actually. Yeah? It's a hoot, too. It's pretty hilarious. I've been cracking up, reading it a good bit. I like your style. It's it's bittersweet. There are <laughs> really, really difficult. But well, Lance and I go back literally to his first movie, To Mansion of the Dune. We also, we didn't find it. We, we knew where it was. We finally extricated the original negative. And that's coming out literally in a few weeks on Blu-ray, which is great because up to now, it has only existed on a bad SD transfer. So you'll see it. It looks freaking awesome. You'll see a very young Lance Henderson. But yeah, so Dissolve, 8 million years later, I'm making Pit and the Pendulum with Stuart Gordon, who directed it in Italy at the castle that I owned for many years. And, uh, you know, Oliver Reed was there, who was a force bigger than life. And, you know, Jeffrey Combs. We had a whole wonderful bunch of people. And, and it was a big movie for Full Moon. It was a couple million dollar movie. That's like 20 movies today for what we're <laughs> able to spend. And yeah, Lance was, he was, he played Torquemada and he was Torquemada pretty much 24 seven. And to his credit, he did a great job. Whereas Oliver Reed was amazing to work with. I mean, again, if you've read the book, I, I don't want to spoil stuff, but he was able to consume gallons of booze all day and absolutely be spot on on set. I don't know how he did it. I mean, he literally in the morning, because I owned this castle for many years. I shot movies there like Meridian, Castle Creek, others and pit the pendulum so this castle sits on top of this medieval village about an hour outside of rome and directly across the street from this humongous castle is a little bar and by bar italy bar style is you know you get cappuccino and you get ice cream it's not just people go there and drink although there's booze there and he began his day before call at the bar drinking lots of beer and then lunch and then of course dinner massive amount of white wine but he was an amazing amazing guy and i don't know how he did it because he you would almost think he is going to stumble on the set and really he a little stumbling and then he got in front of the camera and he was sober and amazing to work with but he and lance there was some rivalry because you know oliver reed was a name lance you know lance by then was pretty well known but you know oliver reed could you know eat him up for lunch <laughs> fast forward a couple of decades so say oliver reed and lance hendrickson were fun behind the scenes justin and i were wondering what about gary Busey? <laughs> give me an anecdote so, please he's one of my favorite people on this planet so when you eventually read don't give away anything from the book because i will be reading <laughs> oh well there's a lot of it, not to worry because the book is full of insane stories and they are they are my confessions too but i worked with gary for eight hours all it was on the day of shoot, and then he came back and he did the voice of the pissed off, injured, dead man cooking. In those eight hours are literally volumes of stories. I mean, the <laughs> shit that happened on set, I can't, it, it, I could spend the rest of this hour telling you what happened on set. Um, <laughs> Us warning all the poor little young girls at interning, stay clear, you know, because Gary, he has, this is like also before the kind of Me Too happened. So, I mean, he would have no compunction looking at the girl and coming at her like this, you know, which is, <laughs> it's, it, there's, there's no subtlety here. Whatsoever. I would expect oh, nothing less. <laughs> no subtlety. I Everybody's mean, creepy uncle. I only, yeah, but he's, he's so out there and so full of energy. And I'll tell you, I'll give you one story that just to give you an idea. And the only other actor I've worked with who is probably just as whacked out in a different way, but is actually dangerous was Klaus Kinski. You know, Klaus Kinski learned away. You can just look at Klaus until, yeah. But, but Klaus is, I mean, I was on set on a movie that he made for me 
where he literally had a knife to the neck of the director. Klaus would, could kill someone. You know, Gary, it's never going to be anything physical. He'll say crazy shit and you'll just wonder, oh my God. And yes, he does that. He probably then does that. <laughs> but, you know, you don't have a sense of jeopardy with Gary. So, I, I mean, can I just be raunchy on the show? I don't know. Is it, is it, can I just... Yeah, you can say yeah, whatever, say whatever, you, whatever you want. Yeah. So, I mean, there, there are many, many Gary Busey stories all from that one day on set. But the one that, the one that just the one I want to tell is, so we were asked by Gary's, I mean, just getting Gary Busey was a miracle because I had this idea. Actually, this is one of those rare projects that it wasn't really my story. I was, I was brought a script by a good friend, Billy Butler, who's working for me now and doing, he did The Resonator, he did Baby Oopsie, really happy with the movies we're making or the current full movie. But his script was super overblown. There were 10 ginger dead men. It was, you know, multi, it's a $10 million movie. We had not that. So because the character that the Gary Busey character who then becomes the voice or inhabits the little body of the ginger dead man, Cookie, only needed to work one day on set before he kills someone. He gets sent to the electric chair. His witchy mom gets the body. She cooks his ashes, puts it in the ginger dead batter. And the avenging daughter of the guy who was killed in the bakery is threatened by a pissed off little cookie with Gary Busey's voice. I and mean, that's kind of the, if you've never seen one of the great movies of all time, watch the ginger dead man. It's a hoot. It's, it it's a hoot. It's, a, it's fun. And we made many later. And by the way, our Second most successful franchise, if you would think of transers and subspecies after Puppet Master, is Evil Bob. Evil wow. Bob. Yep. We made nine of them. And one of them is Ginger Dead Man versus Evil Bob. Just to show you <laughs> if I may interject, you gave me my first real break. You let me score the music for your commercials. Wheaties and the stuff. Yeah, Leroy and uh, Lindsay Schmitz, they're the ones that just, long story short, you gave me my first break with that. I did some of the interstitial ah, music for that. So. That's fantastic. You did a great job because those movies really work. <laughs> and they play forever. They're sort of like timeless, weird, fucked up movies. So it's, uh, <laughs> yeah. <laughs> it's, it's pretty cool. Anyway, so with Gary Busey, uh, or with that part, the cool thing was that the actor who would play that part only worked for eight hours, nine hours on set, and then the rest is a voice. So we were able to afford, because I thought it'd be kind of fun to get a name as opposed to just, because we usually don't cast names in our movies. And then someone suggested Gary Busey, and everyone said, no way, he'll never do it. Then we submitted the script and a good offer. And he called and says, I like this fucking script. And, you know, he's lucky <laughs> Gary Busey, so he, he went for a, you know, a, a possible career killer, a, you know, role. So he's only has to work eight hours, but I was warned about everything. Woman, <laughs> all the stuff. And I'm good. I mean, I've dealt with everyone, Klaus Kinski, the whole fucking thing. So I wasn't worried and we got along really well, but he was eccentric. He walked off, he did crazy shit. So here's my one really inappropriate story. So it's the middle of the day. He's already disappeared once. Everyone's in a panic. I said, he's here. Don't worry. So the AD comes and he goes, you know, Gary is gone. And so-and-so said, we saw him walking down Ventura Boulevard, like way away. And I only had like three shots left. So I'm thinking, this, you know, he's nutty, but he's not going to desert the set. So we looked, could not find him. They were knocking on his door because as per contract, aside from the money we gave him, he, we had to provide a motorhome. That's what it's called, where you, you know, a private motorhome so he can go in there, do his thing. In addition to the motorhome, they asked for a huge tray of candy, very specific Mars bars, Snickers, Skittles, all this shit, big tray of candy. And we thought, okay, so we got the thing, we got the candy. Anyway, so I go to, I'm, we're looking for Gary Busey and I'm, now I'm regretting telling the story. I don't even know you guys. I don't know this poor gal. Is this, <laughs> what is this guy talking about? But remember, these are my confessions. <laughs> 
anyway, I go, well, maybe he's in his trailer. So I, I go to the trailer. I knock on the door. No, Gary, Gary. And I thought, fuck it. And I had a key. I open it up. No, Gary, but the tray of candy. All that was left were wrappers. So I knew that Gary Busey was on a fucking crazy sugar high somewhere, you know, having eaten all that candy. And then I closed the door and I heard behind the motorhome, which was kind of wedged in an alley of the parking lot, I heard like, and I heard girls getting, oh shit, it sounds like he's talking to some chicks. I don't know. So I kind of wedge around and look, and I kid you not, there's Gary, who's big guy, kind of hulking over three little intern girls. And he's literally saying, so what the fuck happened to the bush? Do you have a bush? And the girl goes, no, it's gone. Why did you fucking take your bush off? Back in my day, everyone had, it was like whole rant about the bush. And these girls were completely trying to, so I said, Gary, Gary, please, we have a shot to do. And, and that was it. And we, he went back to set. <laughs> please don't ask was, the interns about their pubic hair. <laughs> where's the bush? That was I could see him doing that just just like flicking a switch, kind of like Batley and Fern Gully, asking about the bushes, like, Gary, we got to film it. Right. <laughs> and just walking off the fish. That's hilarious. <laughs> I've got a hundred stories in this book like that. I mean, because look, I work with so many actors and so many people. Luckily, I a lot of people who went on to become really well known. I mean, Diego Mortensen and Demi Moore and Helen Hunt, and, and they all kind of started with me. So the stories are awesome. Which one was Vigo Mortensen? Prison. Oh, really? He was terrific. Oh, okay. too. He was really. That was his first break. Prison. You've jump started hell half of Hollywood by this point. Uh, you've you've had some dealings with getting them going. I was curious. So, oh, I had a question. Fred Williams is he? He is cool in person as he is in movies. He's totally cool. He's just such a gentleman. You know, you wouldn't know he ever made a movie if you just met him. He's just like a cool dude, you know? He's amazing. Welcome to the night. You think you know Night Demon? Then the Night Demon Heavy Metal Podcast is for you. Step into the darkness as we peel back the curtain to give you an unprecedented, all-access look into the mind and the heart of the demon. We're talking band history, song analysis, studio anecdotes, stories from the road. It's everything a diehard Night Demon fan could want and more. This is the only place to learn the inside scoop, the deep dive trivia, the untold tales from the band members themselves and those closest to the Night Demon story. Need more? The sacred Night Demon crypt will be pried open to reveal demo recordings that have never before seen the light of day all with in-depth commentary by the band and the people who were there for the writing and recording process. This is a gold mine, a treasure trove of all things Night Demon. Head over to nightdemon.net or wherever you listen to podcasts. Charles, you're dealing with some subspecies superfans here, and recently we had Mr. Ted Nicolau on, a buddy of yours, and he touched a bit on the cultural climate of the time for Romania when you guys were filming the series, directly after the fall of communism. Now, can you tell us a bit about that experience through your perspective? Ted tells it best because, you know, I, I sent him there on many occasions. You know, he was our, if you read, there's a really good bunch of stuff in the book about his experiences and what Romania was like back then. So I'm up for the adventure, you know, whatever scares most people, I think, let's fucking let's do it. So I had already owned the studio in Italy in the 80s, which was the ex Dino De Laurenta studios, huge hundred acre. That was three, four amazing years. And Ted was there too. He directed Terravision. 
at the studio, but I made movies like Troll and From Beyond and Dolls and Crawl Space. And anyway, that kind of ended for a bunch of reasons. And then there was an opportunity in 91, right after the fall of Ceausescu, fall as in after his loving, uh, he got shot by people, you know, he and his wife. Anyway, Romania was suddenly open and it was really kind of scary, messed up. I mean, people were so delighted that the whole communist thing was over, but there was no money and it was just a dark, dark place to be. But we, I was attracted to it because I met someone at a film market and he was a Romanian guy and he said, look, it's scary, but you know, once you get past some of the scary stuff, the locations are amazing. You bring your dollars, you can buy so much stuff. You're going to get great locations. And anyway, he convinced me and I went and checked it out and it was scary. You know, the, there's no way to describe the airport, which now has been totally changed. Now it's a happy airport, but trying to think of the movie, the famous movie where those kids in Turkey or something get busted for drugs. Great movie from the seventies. I think he'll come to me anyway. If you hadn't said it, I would have told you the name. I know what you're talking about. Yeah, yeah. Just think of dark, dark wood, young kids with huge, massive assault rifles. You know, you get off a plane, which you can't get there with a normal care. This is back in 91. You can't get there with, uh, you know, any European line. You have to go from a major city and then get their airline, which is called Tarom, T-A-R-O-M, which was not a very nice looking airplane. And to give you an idea, you fly from Rome or wherever to Bucharest, you, you know, you know, those hospital gurneys that are like metal and clanky, that's kind of what they wheel down the aisle with like warm Coca-Cola's for refreshments. So the whole thing was just out of a really weird movie. And then you get to the airport, that's really scary. But once you got beyond that, place was beautiful, even though they were very poor. And I mean, now it's thriving. So it seemed like the right thing. We were made a, an offer that was interesting. And of course, you know, Ted is usually the front man. I came back. I said, Ted, this subspecies movie we've been wanting to make. Good news. We're ready to fund it. We can make it. You can direct it and write it, but it's not going to be Italy. It's going to be Bucharest, Romania, you know, which was perfect. I mean, we shot it in yeah. Transylvania. But, you know, who knew? So, you know, I'm sure he told you of his experiences, but it was great. For a while, it was amazing. I built a studio there, which still stands as a big thriving studio. And I sold that in the year 2000. That was enough of that. And we made, I don't know, like 150 movies there over nine years. But we made subspecies, and which it should have been a four-week shoot. I think it took eight weeks. It was like a nightmare, but not that much more expensive. The footage was amazing. And Ted came back and we released it very quickly through Paramount. It did really well. I said, Ted, you want to make two more of them? Like back to back in Romania. So being gluttons for punishment, man, we went back there and, and then just kept making crazy movies. And now finally, we were going to do this last year. I'm sure Ted told you now COVID kind of messed us up. But now in March, April, we're going to go to Croatia, which is right next to Romania. Now much more affordable. And, and we're going to shoot finally the subspecies five, which should be really, really cool. Thank you. Yes. Thank you. Thank you. God, yes. thank you. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> thank you so much. <laughs> <laughs> I'll jump in a tandem on this one. Ted Nicolau, I mean, he said that it might have been lost, but I'm still hoping out against hope. And I figure, and I know you're going to be like, well, yeah, if I had it, hell, I'd already released it. But Subspecies 4 on Blu-ray, is that ever going to happen? Hell, if I had it, I'd already released it. <laughs> I mean, it would be so cool. And it's such a tragedy that we do not have the negative. You know, it's hard to describe this, but, you know, I've had ups and downs and periods where things are great, periods where things are fucking terrible. And to maintain the elements 
uh, in a library that dates back now 47 years, you know, it takes money. You know, you got to keep storage. You got to pay the houses that keep the negatives. And it's a miracle that 80% of the negatives are still here that I can go back that I found freaking last foxtrot. You know, it's just incredible. But once in a while, something happens. I'll somewhere between sh shooting subspecies for the lab in Bucharest, sending it here. Maybe the, it, we, we just can't find it. Maybe it's just, I don't think it exists. I think it was possibly thrown out. So all we can do is take the SD master, which is not terrible and spend a bunch of money and trick it out and, you know, bump it up. It'll look better. You know, it'll be better than never doing that. But it's one of it's it's one of the it's the most regrettable bummer negatives that we lost of all the movies. We found almost everything, but that one is really a shame. You'll have to forgive me for jumping all over the place, Charles, but you were at ground zero of the VHS boom. You sort of helped spearhead that whole movement with Wizard Video and ended up licensing some major titles. How did you get ahead of that curve where a lot of your contemporaries at the time skeptical of the medium? Yeah, way skeptical. There's a lot of good stuff in the book about those early days. So in 77, I was beginning to make movies and I, you know, I, I've always been a film freak. So as I had some money and things got better, first I would, I bought maybe, I had maybe six or seven 16 millimeter prints of movies, you know, which was great to have, but it's, you know, it's a pain in the butt. The thing, the projector, threading, your friends, you drink too much booze, you fuck the film, you know, it's just not easy. You know, today we went from that to having to take a VHS, the tape sometimes got fucked up to putting a DVD. And now it's like, you just sit there and your thumb may get tired. You have to do shit. It's all streaming. I, I mean, a lot of people are very active with their physical media. I have lots and lots of movies, but I, I can't remember the last time I actually pulled a movie off a shelf. I do remember. It was maybe four months ago because I wanted to see something I couldn't find online. Fucking dusty thing because it sits there. You know, we just, habits change. But back then, 60 millimeter was cool, but it was a pain in the butt. So then I made a movie called Laser Blast. Some interesting people. Yes. And I worked with a, an actor named Roddy McDowell, who was a famous child star and he, he was one of the, the names we brought on back in the day that was sort of how we had to do it and he, I, he and I became really good friends and he's a film buff and he's a famous was a very famous child actor and a famous guy so he's hooked into the studios and back then maybe up to recently if you're a, in the in crowd in Hollywood you could call the head of any studio or any studio film department and say hey I'm having a private screening in my home of King Kong can we uh, get a print sent over and it's a courtesy people do that if you're a superstar or Europe owner of a studio. So Roddy said, you know, I got a really good thing going because I'm building a collection of movies on three quarter inch tape, which was the medium at the time, you know, big three quarter inch tape, much better quality than a VHS or a Betamax, but they were 60 minutes long. Roddy said, my partner in crime is a guy named Wally Hyder. I said, who's Wally Hyder? He said, Wally Hyder has a very famous recording studio in Hollywood. He's another film buff. And we kind of chip in together and, you know, I, I kind of borrow these prints. He's got a film chain. He puts them up on the film chain, presto bingo. We all have copies of Gone with the Wind. You know, it was unheard of at that time. This is before video. So I said, well, count me in. So for maybe a year, we would all kind of decide which movie. Roddy would get the movie. And we wound up with movies like freaking King Kong, Gone with the Wind, the extra, all sorts of crazy successful movies, put them on the film chain. And we would, it was always two tapes, the three quarter inch, one hour and the three quarter and 30 minute or a second hour. So there's always a point you have to take a tape out and put a tape in. So for about a year, 75, 76, I forget the year, maybe 77, I amassed a collection of maybe 20 movies on three quarter inch. And by, by then, back, by then we could get a kind of a big, ugly screen. If you remember those screens that you know, 
the back of it was eight feet from the wall. It was a big tube. And, <laughs> yeah. But suddenly, and I'm not really that social, suddenly people, oh my God, I hear you have a, a screening next week of King Kong. And could we be, all of a sudden it became a thing every weekend I'd screen one of these movies at home. And the thrill of being able to, at will, put a great movie on and sit at home that did not exist on planet Earth. So after doing that for a year and really being appreciative of everything about it, I read, uh, as we all did, that they were coming out with this machine called the Betamax, uh, which was going to be something you could record movies off TV. And a real clever guy who's credited as the godfather of the home video business, his name was Andre Blay. He started a company called Mag Video, and he was very smart. He went to 20th Century Fox, and it was a big deal at the time. He paid them a million dollars to license for the planet 20 movies, including like the French Connection. And what he did was he packaged them. This is Betamax only. This is before VHS existed. He packaged them in, in you know, the Betamax size box. And these were on racks next to where they were selling the Betamax machine, like at Sears. Okay. So it was very clever. He had these things out. And of course, you buy a machine that records off TV and you think, oh, fuck. I, it was 50 bucks, 49.95. It wasn't cheap. That's a lot of money in 70, whatever it was. Yeah. But you know, you had to think, oh my God, I can buy it. People didn't understand it. I can buy and own the French connection for all eternity. So they would so suddenly in the, in the first few months, these things were really taking off. And of course, day one, <clears throat> when those machines were available, I went, I think it was Sears. I went to Sears, and the only way you could buy a Betamax machine was in a big, huge car, Ben Cartwright fucking console, you know, like one of those 200 pound things with the TV and all the car wood and the Betamax, but I couldn't <laughs> shit. I'd be, I needed the Betamax really badly. So I had that temporarily until they came out with the deck and I got rid of the big console. But that gave me the idea that I need in that business. So what I did is, and no one knew shit, I licensed maybe 30, 20, over the course of three months, really successful movies of the time that were independent. Groove Tube, Tunnel Vision, Eventually I Spit on Your Grave, The Boogeyman. Mm -hmm. And the distributors who I knew because I was making movies, who owned these movies, they literally thought I was crazy. First I had to explain what I was licensing. Then it was like, I mean, if I had more money, I, I could have licensed probably 200 movies that today would be worth millions, but nonetheless, but it was like usually five grand, you know, five grand made them so freaking happy that they were licensing for this. They said, wait a minute, you, you think that you're going to sell enough $50 tapes to make your money back? And this thing just started. How many people, you know, how many people own these things? You know? So anyway, it was these ground zero, the infancy of this business. And I did that and little by little, and we had our own machines in the back of my little office here in Hollywood. And I had a guy and we had the, the, the three quarter inch was the master. And then it fed eight or 10 Betamax. Then VHS came out. We had to expand. And now we had to print two freaking covers, one for Betamax, one for VHS. And the thing little by little exploded. It was called, the company was called Media Home Entertainment. And eventually we had Halloween. It was quite a catalog and became sort of an amazing business. But what really ignited the business was when someone figured out, well, wait a minute, why don't we let stores buy these things and then rent them? Because remember in the beginning, the rental was not even a concept. Mm -hmm. they, they actually said, the, the distributor said, that's illegal. You can't rent it. It was a big legal thing. You can buy it from us for 30 bucks and sell it for 49.95, but you can't rent it from your store. But they won that battle. That actually blew up the home. Then it became every street corner had a video store. Because now for three, four bucks, you rented the French Connection. I, I don't think anyone's seen the French Connection more than twice. I mean, I'm sorry. I don't think that's uh, <laughs> physically possible, as good of a movie as it is. So that's kind of how the whole uh, video thing started. Being ahead of the curve, I mean, 
you did it once again with Full Moon Streaming. You were one of the first. Yeah, we were six months after Netflix. Of course, wow. once again, we went to conventions and tried to, we gave everything. We're still doing it today. We'll give shit away just to bring people on board. And now we're giving away a subscription for a year to Full Moon Streaming if you buy the book. So now we have a com complete reverse thing because I want people to read the book because it's pretty damn cool. So anyway, but yeah, back then we just started the streaming thing. And I remember that a year after going to eight or 10 conventions, working hard to make people understand, we finally hit a thousand subscribers, which really didn't pay for anything. I mean, it was just- I, I was you. one. <laughs> you, you, are, you are our kind of scum. I appreciate it. <laughs> <laughs> but then what ha what happened was maybe two years into that maybe now we had 1800 subscribers i get a call one day or an email from a guy no it was a call and he said hey i'm a fan of your movies i, I see you have a streaming site i work for amazon and amazon is going to start something called an add-on subscription option so if you're a prime member and you want to see someone's streaming site you know if, whether it's about par movies or fishing or whatever we're starting with 40 add-on subscription sites and they had this was before they had Showtime, but they had other sites. There was another horror site, I forget what it was called. Would you like to be part of the this initiative? And you know, whatever the royalty is, we would split it. I said, fuck yeah. Please, <laughs> no, let me let me do that. So then, you know, we had to deliver all the by then we had 400 movies up. You had to re-deliver all those movies because they didn't want any part of our little hokey streaming site. They wanted to put the movies up on their Amazon platform. So we delivered it. And in the first three months, we had 8,000 subscribers. Wow. And, and it's grown little by little, little ever since. I mean, it's Amazon, right? So yeah, but I was there day one going to the shows and people going, what? And then luckily some people had Netflix or oh no, I get it. I, I'm subscribing to Netflix. That's cool. But the transition was really slow, you know, from the absolute death of the video store to streaming, picking up steam. It was like four really bad years for anybody making independent movies. Speaking of staying ahead of the curve, I saw a couple of days ago, I believe that you guys were potentially releasing a Puppet Master video game. What can you tell us about that? Uh, yes. Yeah, that's boy. You guys are well informed. I've got the old alpha of the game. I've actually gotten the test footage from like I think it was five or six years ago. Yeah, guys, they're called October Games. We have little to do with it. They've been working hard. We did a deal where it's, uh, Radu, the character from Subspecies, is now in one of their games as a evil character. I mean, I sold. Don't, okay, there's <laughs> that. But they've been working now for years on a Puppet Master video game, and it comes out I think next October, something like that. I don't know how it works. You buy skins it's all the usual stuff I, I don't i'm not a gamer but it should be cool definitely looking forward to that i also wanted to ask you charles since you've had experience filming in both the states and in europe what are some of the primary differences if any to filming in the states versus filming overseas i don't think any i mean you know crews are very similar i mean well locations you're in europe right so you have different background and different you know it's cool it's cool to be able to do both because if you look at sort of my body of work we have transylvanian castles and weird shit you can't find here in the states and then we have all sorts of you know u.s locations and cities and vegas and houses and we're not all over the landscape we're now shooting movies in cleveland which is kind of a cool story and i'm excited about for years i've been looking for lack of a better description a haunted house a place where we could shoot many movies like a big house that's kind of messed up and creepy and old and last year that's another that's, that's in my is it in my book maybe not no because last year yeah okay anyway so i'm you know i get confused because you know i wrote the book but there's a thousand things that happened since then it's like, well, wait, <laughs> i'm gonna write another book i think because there's so much going on now i'm gonna use the title that i wanted for the first book and i know this will sound really really weird but when i go 
to Italy. I used to go to the castle and I have some property there. I know this sounds weird, but someone would drive me from Rome to the turnoff where I have a guy who's worked for me for years who takes me in the country to a property, to the property. It used to be the castle. Now this is other property. And the place we meet at literally is called the Titty Bar. And in Italy, <laughs> it just sounds funny, but it literally is T-I-T-T-Y Bar. And for probably 35 years, I would meet him there and meet other people there. Or when I made movies in Italy, well-known actors. It was hard to get up sometimes. We had to accompany people up to the property. We would always meet there now since the 80s. So the book, I wanted to call the book, Meet Me at the Titty Bar, which I thought would be <laughs> a great title. Probably not as classy as the Confessions of a Puppet Master. The crews are very much the same. You, know, you have to love cinema. You have to love what you're doing, you know, and, and that's the common denominator. I don't, I mean, I know I shot in Romania too. I mean, Romanian crews, it's all the same. There's, there's people are into, into the whole deal, you know. I have to say, if I had the financial means tomorrow, the very first thing I would do would be to buy a castle, which is what you did. You pretty much lived out every boy's childhood dream. Now, when you bought the castle, was there a lot of renovations that had to be done? How long did you have to work on it before you could actually enjoy it and live in it? Yeah. <laughs> Uh, the castle story is another book um <laughs> it's i got lucky because i was literally making movies i owned the studio at that time and i'm a collector a freaky collector of tons of stuff and i i collect these old paintings called vanitas vanitas the vanities it's the passage of time so the 16th 17th century paintings which i used to have a lot of and i sold most of them when i needed money that's what happens in showbiz but anyway these are paintings that show the passage of time like there's usually a skull and then there's a book usually in latin and then there's a candle or there's a woman who is looking in a, in a mirror and she's looking like and in the mirror the reflection is a skull and obviously I'm attracted to this because I make horror movies but it's really cool art and I have a friend who I bought this art from, an Italian guy. So I go to his store one day in Rome, and he goes, Charlie, the coolest thing ever, the very famous Castello di Giove, which is the castle of Giove, literally an hour out of Rome, is being sold. People are up in arms because the family died off, and the young chick wants to go party. She doesn't want to own a fucking castle anymore. It's been in the family a billion years. They're selling everything in the castle, a lot of cool stuff, and some of the paintings you like. And the last item they're selling is the castle itself. I go, where's the car? You know, let's 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 go out. so we went out there myself and my, my my wife at the time walked through this place found a couple cool things but through a, a miracle of timing and good luck i left i had to come back to the states i gave my friend through the italian consulate the, the english word is uh, the authority to bid on my behalf for the items i wanted and then for the castle as a joke because the castle was estimated at millions and millions of dollars i didn't have any millions of dollars but it started at basically seven hundred thousand dollars and they had this old system where you, you talk about the, the auctioneer lights a match and he talks about the history and he lights a second match and he says something else and then he lights a third match and if nobody bids more than the opening amount of money, which was about $700,000, that person gets it. So I'm on the phone. This is back before cell phones, right? I had a phone. I My guy arranged for a phone into the main ballroom of the castle where there was like 800 people bidding on shit. We knew there were seven or eight serious bidders for the castle itself because you had to register. You had to send 25 grand just to be a bidder so that you at least you weren't a complete fake. So we were excited, but I said, my friend's name is Rolando. I said, Rolando, you know, it's just not going to happen. I mean, 
mean, maybe I could bid 25 grand beyond the 700,000. And we have wealthy people there and this, that, and the other. He said, don't worry. He said, and again, I'm, I'm doing the story and injustice. He says, don't worry, don't worry, because not only do I know the auctioneers, but I know the matches they're using. And it's timed in a way where I think I could call the bid one hair before the match burns out, before the official bid. And he had some concoction of timing and he had a stopwatch. And I said, all right, so... <laughs> Whatever it is, I'm on the phone. I remember it was my son's birthday and I hear all these crowds and finally I hear the auctioneer and the match and he's whispering me the thing at the time. He says, look in here, he just looked at match and if I can just get it a fraction before anyone can bid, you got the fucking castle. And sure enough, the thing was just burning out. He's, he called one bid above the minimum and I got the castle for seven hundred grand. It was estimated $8 million. Now, it, talk about a fixer-upper. It was a shell, you know. So that, that's many years of fixing and adjusting, and I shot movies there. But I basically kind of stole it in a way. All in here. I mean, it's not just about making movies. It's about being a crazy entrepreneur because people, you can do this shit. If you're inspired, just keep going. You get knocked down, you get up. You say, it doesn't matter. Just freaking keep going. And, you know, you can have a career. But that's really what the book's about because it starts with me doing crazy shit as a kid. And I'm still doing crazy stuff, so. Well, thank you, because I have looked up to you for decades. Oh, so you I'm are just another in, dude. That's all. Just another dude. Yeah, what? Well, <laughs> that's fine. I've been podcasting for ten years, and you have been the reason that I still podcast because I want wanted to get you across the screen from me. The book. Don't worry, the book is sold. But please, before you leave, Angelique has a very important question for you. Okay, I'm ready. All right. So you make movies, um, and and you're obviously a fan. You watch movies. What I like to know is what is your go-to movie snack? Ooh man well recently it's succession <laughs> i'm sorry just i love that show i mean the truth is i'm i'm so in my bubble i mean i shouldn't admit this here but you know i'm really not on social media at all never have been mm -hmm. I, I i am the guy on my twitter account my i i I write that shit. Otherwise, I'm just focused on making my movies. And, you know, we're, we we all, I've watched a lot, like we all did last year, pandemic, we're at home a lot. So it was fun to kind of rediscover movies that I haven't seen for a while. I watched the, uh, all the original universal horror movies again, because they're kind of a movie snack. I mean, when you really think of, you know, the original Frankenstein and Bride of Frankenstein and the Wolfman, I mean, those movies are just so cool in so many ways. I love those. I love all the Ray Harryhausen movies, uh, Seven Boy Jacinda, Jason and the Argonauts. Those are more movie snacks. But I, I love clever movies that, you know, slasher films and in your face and shock and it's like, please, it's not my thing at all. I mean, <laughs> give, me, give, me, give me the sixth sense, you know, give me something that unless you were tipped off, surprises you and shocks you because it's so freaking clever you know give me the shining the exorcist you know so there's there's a lot of films like that that i well not so many that make me feel really good and if i want to get inspired and it's great seeing something good because there's so little of it i i I get in a bad mood when I see something I'm looking forward to and I'm sitting there for two and a half hours. It's like, oh, <laughs> oh yeah. Oh, yeah. Is this thing over? Oh, wait, they're going to explode New York again and this could be another <laughs> wave and fucking lasers and more lasers. It's like, who cares? You know, the, the great movies we all fell in love with as kids were really character -driven. Everyone buy the book. Let me show you how subtle I can be. Buy the fucking book, okay? <laughs> on freestyle, it's 25 bucks. It's my life so far. Because I am gonna make I'm gonna write next time, meet me at the titty bar, which will be even more handled. I can't buy well. you too. <laughs> Thanks for having me on your on your show. Do you know when you live this life, it's just there's nothing else. Not like, oh, I'm gonna go. Uh, there's nothing it's the movies and making them and trying to play that clip later again buy my fucking book okay <laughs> buy the fucking book <laughs>
I'm going to have it tattooed on my ass. Okay. <laughs> no, 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 don't do that. <laughs> uh, you kind of run the ending. <laughs> no, wait a minute. Story of my life. Let's tattoo it on, on it. No, I, I, I got to be careful what I say these days. My young kids are going, Charlie, don't say that shit. We're in a different era. <laughs> Fine. <laughs> See you all Thank later, you, man. Guys. You take Bye. care. Bye-bye. Good night. Recording live from the Black Lodge, it's me, the free will burning, head turning, ass kicking, machismo dripping, master podcasting, mouthpiece of the Southeast, uncontested superstar of the airwaves, and your reigning and defending podcast champion of the world, Brandon A. Lane, inviting all you fans of Monsters, Madness, and Magic to check out my podcast, Rants from the Black Lodge. What are we all about? Well, let me lay some inside baseball on you. The first of each month, myself and the Rant Army dissect some of cinema's greatest horror and cult films with in-depth retrospectives. Then on the 15th of each month, we present something a little more lighthearted with a fun watch-along commentary for some of cult films' more underappreciated offerings. Rants from the Black Lodge can be found on all major platforms, so hop on over to your app of choice and give us a sub. Follow us on social media at Rants Black Lodge, and for the love of Cthulhu, hop over and check us out on our homepage at JuicyKruger.com. Oh yeah, and please continue to support all the great content by our friends at Monsters, Madness, and Magic.